Today we're going to be talking about the Apostle Peter. He is one of the key figures in the book of Acts. Now there are other individuals, you think of Silas and Barnabas and John Mark and all the different characters who play a minor or supporting role, but the two major characters in the book of Acts are Peter and Paul. Okay? The first half of the book of Acts or so is primarily focused on Peter, and then about midway it shifts over to Paul. So what I figured I would do is do a biographical study of each of these gentlemen, and in so doing, go through their record in the book of Acts and see how the Lord led during that time to give us an overview of the book of Acts. And with the other two sermons, what I'll do is present what I believe are two of the most important events in the book of Acts, pivotal events, And I'm talking about after the day of Pentecost. Most of the time when we study the book of Acts, we study chapter 1 and chapter 2 especially, and then say, and the church grew after that. And a few things. We might highlight Stephen's stoning, something like that. But there is more to the book of Acts. And as as we study it sequentially, we just go through it, and we get this overarching look at it, we're going to see that Acts is beautifully written, it's brilliantly written, And it has direct application for our lives today. So today we're going to be studying the Apostle Peter. Next week we'll be studying the Apostle Paul. But before we begin our study today, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the snow outside and the warmth inside. Thank you for letting us get a glimpse of the inner working of the Holy Spirit and the outward manifestation of commitment and baptism. And Lord, thank you that we can study your word Lord, I ask that that same Holy Spirit now would be sent once again to sharpen our minds, help us to read with open eyes and clear understanding the words of Scripture, and help us to see lessons for ourselves that you wish to write on our hearts, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Of course, the Apostle Peter wasn't always the Apostle Peter. He started as the Disciple Peter. And before he was even a disciple of Jesus, his experience in Scripture actually predates the ministry of Jesus itself. Uh, he and Andrew, which it was his brother, and the gospel writers consistently refer to him as Simon Peter's brother. Um, Peter and Andrew were fishermen originally in their original occupation. Of course, Jesus eventually called them to be fishers of men. Peter was born and raised in a devout Jewish home, both Uh, Both he and his brother were apparently baptized by and were followers of John the Baptist before Jesus came along, and they were some of the ones who transitioned from following John to following Jesus when John pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Part of that conversation, part of it was heard by Peter. And he followed Jesus from that point on, and as John's ministry decreased and Jesus increased, Peter was part of that transition The gospel, by the way, clearly recognizes Peter of the two brothers as the more, shall we say, outgoing of the two. Um, Andrew, as we've talked about before, was always called Simon Peter's brother, and his only references in the gospel record are behind the scenes leading people to Jesus. Let's go take them to Jesus. Peter, on the other hand, was much, much more outgoing. He is the de facto spokesman of the assembled disciples, And some of the most notable experiences in the life of Jesus with his disciples had Peter front and center. Uh, You think of walking on the water. That was Peter, which, of course, was followed immediately by being pulled out of the water by Jesus. Uh, It was Peter who boldly declared that Jesus was the Son of God. 
only to be followed minutes later by that same Jesus turning around and saying, get thee behind me, Satan. And of course, most notably, at the conclusion of Jesus' ministry here on earth, it was Peter who violently defended Jesus as he was being taken by the guards to his mock trial, but it was the same Peter that just hours later profanely denied Jesus in the public square in Jesus' hour of greatest need. Peter was one who was, if nothing else, he was consistently bold in all that he did. He wasn't always right in what he did, but he was growing. He was a work in progress. And he would step forward, and whatever he did, he was, you know, he was either going to head a home run or a strikeout, but he was going to swing for the fences every time he did something. And that was the apostle, that was the disciple Peter. But of course, that denial of Jesus stung him deeply, and it stung Jesus as well. And thus, we come to the end of the gospel record of John, chapter 21. As was well, read so well, Jesus reinstates him after his three times over denial, and it's appropriate that Jesus ask him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But he didn't just ask, do you love me? Yes, his response was, do you love me? And he said, yes, feed my lambs. And then the second time, tend my sheep. And then we go to verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. He was giving him this commission. You are going to be a shepherd of the flock. Feed them, tend them, care for them. And then he adds, turning to the future in a prophetic eye, Jesus looks forward and declares in verse 18, most assuredly. Now, that's not to say that Jesus would sometimes say things with, you know, less assurance or shooting from the hip, but he's saying it in a very structured, very poignant way as is to grasp his attention, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. It's appropriate that Jesus' final words to Peter that we have recorded in Scripture directly to him are the same as his very first words. Follow me. Follow me. It's as though he's had this three and a half years of ministry. He makes the most critical error of his life in denying the Lord publicly. Jesus reinstates him and says, Now, if you keep to this commitment, this is the life that you will lead and the death that you will incur because of it. Are you sure that you love me? And Peter commits on that beach to saying, yes, Lord, I'm yours, even unto death. And Jesus says, follow me. And Peter knows what he's going into if he's to follow Jesus from this time out. But here he seals this covenant with Christ. And, of course, Jesus ascends into heaven in the first chapter of Acts. It's only appropriate. John ends right there. Then you just turn the page, and you're in Acts chapter 1. And there in Acts chapter 1, we see Jesus ascend into heaven. And before the day of Pentecost arrives, of course, In Acts chapter 1, it is Peter who leads out during this prayer meeting time to elect a replacement for
for Judas. And we've had a message about that already, but he couldn't just leave it at 11 and they couldn't overshoot it to 13. It needed to be 12 and they had certain qualifications and had to be one who had been all the way from the baptism of John all the way through. And they had the two, two potential candidates and the Holy Spirit decided which one it would be. And Matthias was numbered with the 11 apostles according to the last verse of Acts chapter 1. Of course, Acts chapter 2 Peter is the one who preaches the sermon on the day of Pentecost. Now, you would get the picture there are all these different languages. And uh, notice that it's not the gift of ears that was given. It was the gift of tongues. Peter spoke in a language, and then each of the other disciples, apparently, or the apostles now, would relay that in the language of the people who were there, and so that everyone was able to hear in their own language. But it was Peter's message that was being relayed down the chain. And, of course, his message was Bible-based. It was present truth. And, and if we go to the punchline of that sermon, if you will, his closing argument, he goes to verse 36 in Acts chapter 2. By the way, we're going to be reading a great deal of Scripture together today. So, well, I'm just telling you, be prepared. <laughs> chapter 2 and verse 36. Therefore, so based on all the evidence I've just given you, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And what's the response? Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And of course the answer is repent and believe and be baptized and the Lord will forgive your sins and give you the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. And thus the church begins. 3,000 were added to their number that day. And if, as they say, then they're off to the races. But I want to continue past that and go to Acts chapter 3 now. And notice that Acts chapter 3 is basically a miniature of Acts chapter 2. It's a repeated, almost a carbon copy of the same thing. Let me explain why. Chapter 3 in verse 1. Now Peter and John, you'll notice also in the early parts of the book of Acts, apparently Peter and John were the pairing that went out together the most. Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, so notice John is with him, but Peter is the spokesman, right? Peter said, look at us. So you almost get the impression this man kind of looks up and just sees somebody's coming, so he asks, but he doesn't really pay attention to who it is. They're just a train of people that come by, and if they're willing to give money, he'll ask for alms, but it's a very kind of inconsequential, passing glance type of thing. But Peter leans over, looks real close to him, and apparently John does too, and you can imagine they both just kind of lean in and look at this guy. Peter says, look at me. Now think about this. Up to this point, Jesus has just left. They've just had the day of Pentecost. They've had a mighty sermon preached, but they, there was no healing on the day of Pentecost. This is the first time since Jesus left that a healing was going to happen. And it's Peter who steps out in faith, just like the same Peter who stepped out and walked on that water. Now, it takes faith to walk. You've been said to heal, but think about this from Peter's perspective. It takes a great amount of faith to say, now listen to me. And watch what he says. Fixing his eyes, verse 4, on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And he did. Then Peter said, 
Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. This man has never walked in his life. It's not like he just is remembering something to happen. It wasn't an accident. It came out of his mother's womb this way. And now he's walking, he's leaping, and I'm imagining you cannot get him to shut his mouth about what just occurred. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat before, begging at alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So the Lord heals this man through the ministry of Peter. Now this man doesn't, can't be quiet. He's literally jumping and leaping and praising God. And at verse 11, this provides Peter an opportunity. Now as the lame man who was healed on to, held on to Peter and John... All the people ran together to them to, to the porch, which is called Simon's, I mean Solomon's, greatly amazed. Now notice that how it's written. So when Peter saw it, what is it that he sees? The gathering of the people. Oh, oh there's people coming around. This is my moment, right? So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Notice he's identifying with them. I'm one of you. It's our Father God who did this. The God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. Now wait, think about this. Who you delivered up and what? Denied in the presence of Pilate. Who had done that? Peter had, right? He's like, I know exactly how you feel. I was one of you too. He has credibility with them, right? He says, he calls them out, just point blank. You denied him, verse 14, you denied the holy and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So he uses this healing as an opportunity with the crowds gathered to say, by the way, the God who healed this man is the same God of our fathers, and he sent his son Jesus, and when he showed up, you killed him. Same message as the day of Pentecost. You killed your Messiah. Now, he went through and... The rest of the sermon's not over. He goes back over, and then he quotes Old Testament Scripture again, talking about the, the veracity of the claim of Christ to be the Messiah. And then we go to chapter 4. It just spills right over into chapter 4, verse 1. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in, in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But look at the results of the preaching of Acts chapter 3, verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word believed. Now, do we have any estimate on how many believed? Let's keep reading. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, at Acts chapter 2, there was a great sermon by Peter, and the results of which there were 
3,000. And now, by the end of this sermon, the number has totaled up to 5,000. That means that there must have been about 2,000 who were converted by this speech, this sermon. Okay? So we look at Acts chapter 2 and think, oh, 3,000 a day. We'll just go to the very next chapter, and you have another 2,000 out of the day. Peter is the de facto spokesman and preacher, and notice his message is always the same. I'm one of you, brethren. Our God and Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, and here is scripture to prove the fact, and you recall you denied him and killed him. He had the same message, the same message, the same message, preaching the present truth of Jesus Christ all the time. Now, of course, it ends there with them being arrested, but uh, the problem is... the people were on Peter's side. You don't just heal someone and 2,000 more are converted and then have that person whisked away and hope to do it quietly. So the leaders don't like Peter and John preaching. They certainly don't like this whole uh, you and the rulers crucified him because they're the ones who did it. But at the same time, they know they can't do any physical damage to Peter and John because the people, in turn, will do physical damage to them. So the best they can come up with is to threaten them. You better not preach anymore. And I can imagine Peter and John like, what, that's it? You'd just be like, no, 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 no. Peter's like, that's adorable, but I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to keep doing So all they can do is threaten him, and they let him go. And of course, verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and realized that they had been with Jesus. Notice they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were what? Uneducated, untrained, unlearned. One of the things you're going to see develop in the book of Acts, which again, the book of Acts is written beautifully. And it's written, I believe, brilliantly how the, all the chapters work together. And you'll see these, well, we'll, we'll point it out later. There are these introdu- introducings, uh, introductions to later characters early on. It's just fascinating how it's put together. But you'll notice one of the themes is that the people loved Peter. Peter was the one they just uh, they loved. And I would imagine that makes sense. I mean, he's... He's been there in the trenches with them. Uh, he started, he was, a, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, he was raised in a Jewish household. He was a, a disciple of John the Baptist. And he was followed Jesus. So he had a lot of credibility when it came to the history of his own story. But he hadn't been to the schools. He wasn't in a, in a class above them. He wasn't so learned and so scholarly. He was out of their league. He was just one of them. In fact, it was the Apostle Peter who would later write about Paul's writings sometimes Paul writes things that are hard to understand, right? Paul uses these big, long sentences, all this big elocution, and Peter is more plain-spoken. He's a people of the people, and they love him in return. And he's bold, and he makes big, open mistakes. He's transparent. He's everything you want a leader to be, and uh, they love him for it. And we're going to see this. I insert this now because we're going to see this develop. And by the time we get to next Sabbath's message, you won't see the same thing with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wasn't there with John the Baptist. He wasn't there through the ministry of Jesus. In fact, he was early on persecuting the church. 
And though he was Jewish, he was the one who said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he was raised in a Gentile environment, in a Greek, in a Roman citizen, right? He was, he was uh, more cosmopolitan, perhaps more worldly. He was less the original article. He was well-educated. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was multilingual. He was a scholar. He was not one of the people. And the people rallied behind Peter, but they kind of kept Paul at arm's length which will become a huge factor in the history of these two gentlemen, the people's support or lack thereof. But let's continue here with the Apostle Peter. Again, so chapter 4 goes on. Uh, they're arrested but only threatened, and of course they pray and they share, and the, the boldness is noted. They pray for boldness. And notice what happens in Acts chapter 4. Let's start with verse 32. And the reason that this is in here now, it, it sets us up for Acts chapter 5. Each one sets up for the next one. Acts chapter 4, starting verse 32. The result of all this preaching and praying says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Sounds strikingly similar to the results of the day of Pentecost. All the believers had everything in common, and they shared what they needed and everything. This is the same results are manifest. Now, Verse 33, and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, and notice why that would be. For all who were possessors of lands or houses did what? Sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. Then it enters verse 36. And Joseph, who is also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So it says that all the believers were doing this, but it picks one name particular to say, this man is from Cyprus, he had houses or land, he sold everything, committed it to the Lord, made a covenant with the Lord, laid it at the disciples' feet and gave it all up for the ministry. And his name was Barnabas. And of course, we're going to see Barnabas play a major role in chapters to come. But it introduces this character. Interesting. There's a gentleman named, we get his backstory, and then we kind of put that one on a shelf and move on with Peter. But it's building in layers. It's really, really neat. Now, why does it talk about the selling of houses and possessions and people giving up everything that they have, covenanting with the Lord to give him their possessions? Because that introduces Acts chapter 5. But, okay, but is always a contradiction. Everything was going along there, but then this happened. It's a transition point. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a possession. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But verse 2 said, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, it doesn't tell us here, but I don't imagine that the Lord has any problem with you keeping some stuff for yourself unless you've covenanted to do the very opposite of that. It seems, the context seems to indicate that everybody covenanted with the Lord, we're going to have a drive, we're going to help out everybody, we're really going to push together, and whatever we sell, we're going to give 100% of the proceeds to the Lord. And in that great, great hubbub of that, in that great uh, exclamation, uh, ex- 
Galatian, that great high, high, high watermark there. Apparently, Ananias and Sapphira got caught up in it, made a covenant with the Lord to give all that they had, but when the money came in, they said, you know what we could do? They'll never know. You know we'll say we only got this much, but we're going to keep this much. For, you know, we're going we're to take care of us and get the glory of having given everything for the Lord. And they struck a deal. So they come in and lay it at the feet of the apostles and give the representation. Is, Look, we sold everything, and here it is. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Do you see the irony here? Is Peter calling out another disciple, saying, why is Satan working on your heart? He's had that experience too. He's like, brother, I know where you're coming from. Don't do what you're doing. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. Mm. I don't know why it is people say, like, you know, it's the, there's that Old Testament God who would be, take dramatic action, but the New Testament of God is just always nice, always good, always forgiving, always... The same God is Old and New Testament. Okay? The Old Covenant, New Covenant, same Covenant, same Testament, same God all the way through. Somehow we've gotten this picture in our minds, well, I'm New Testament, that means the Lord won't hold me accountable. Yes, He will. Same God. Ananias found that out. Verse 7. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Tell me the truth now. Is this the actual price? She said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. You can imagine everything, oh, this is great, we're just going to, and all of a sudden that happens, like, this is wonderful and blessed, but it is serious and solemn work too. Verse 12 then goes on, it's not just all doom and gloom and death here in Acts chapter 5. Then, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And it says here in verse 14, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they might be brought, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So marvelous miracles of both the solemnity and awesomeness of God and, the, and, and the, the grace and healing power of God were demonstrated through the apostles. And once again, the apostles were imprisoned here. 
Peter is imprisoned. And what happens this time is a gentleman by the name of Gamaliel, starting with verse 33, the Scripture records how a Pharisee named Gamaliel counsels the rest of the Sanhedrin on how to handle the problem of these apostles, Peter being the main one at this point. And he basically gives this thing. He says, you know, in our own history, we recall that there have been other people that rise up to try to create a big ruckus, and they get some followers after them, but eventually those people will end up getting killed. The disciples themselves will disperse, and everything calms down, and we don't have to get involved. However, if it's not from God, that's what will happen to Peter and these guys too. Let it run its course. However, if it is of God, the Lord will bless it, and who do we think we are to stop it anyway? So basically, we have no jurisdiction on this. Let the Lord handle this. If it's blessed, it's of the Lord. If it's not, we'll know, and we'll say, yep, told you so. Right? But that's, let that be our approach. Let the Lord have his vengeance if it's not of God. And of course, they are let go. And uh, it says in verse 42, And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Everywhere they went, they had the same core message. Now, I want to introduce you here to Acts chapter 6. Even though Peter is not specifically named in either Acts 6 or 7, he's, 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 of course, involved with what goes on here. But I want to introduce to you, building on what I talked about, how people loved Peter and they were kind of skeptical or hesitant or kept Paul at arm's length. We see that kind of come out here in Acts chapter 6. Notice what the problem that emerges is. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a what? Complaint against whom? The Hebrews. By whom? The Hellenists. Now, this is not to say people were complaining against the Christians or the Christians were complaining against the non-Christians. Both of these groups are believers in Jesus. Some of them, and both, both of them are Jewish, by the way. These are both Jewish converts to Christianity. The difference is some of them are the real Hebrews. They're actually speaking Hebrew, living in Jerusalem, the Jewish, Jewish, Jewish of the people. And then those other ones, the Hellenists, they're Greek-speaking, right? Right? They probably don't live in Jerusalem, per se. They probably have a different heritage. They might, and the, Hel- uh, the, the Hebrews see them as a little less than real Hebrews, right? So, I mean, sure, we're believers in Jesus and everything, but there starts to be a caste system, a class structure, a hierarchy, a stratification. And the real, the Jerusalem, the Hebrew-speaking, the Hebrew Jews, started looking at the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek believers, Greek-speaking Jews. Again, mind you, both believe in Jesus Christ, but a tension comes up. And what's the thing? There's a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So they started being treated a little bit differently. Some internal strife comes up. Some cultural issues arise within the church. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Notice it gets bigger and bigger. 
and all of a sudden they were tempted to just become hovering pastors, settled pastors. Just we're going to stay here in Jerusalem and we're just going to start receiving things and distributing them and basically set up an organization and a, uh, I mean, a, a government system here and just kind of sit and supervise you people. We're not doing it. Therefore, the, the idea came up, brethren, seek out from among you. But notice, you guys are going to solve this problem from amongst yourselves. Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen. Now, they chose how many? Seven, right? But they start the list with Stephen and then say some extra stuff about him. The rest of the names are just, and this guy, and this guy, and this guy, and this guy. But they start with Stephen, and they give us a little information about him. Why? Because they're setting up what's going to happen in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen makes the speech before the Sanhedrin. It's introducing another character before his main time. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and it goes on and on and on. Verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Notice that the work is growing in this location alone, in Jerusalem. Every convert here, whether they're Hellenist or Hebrew, are Jewish. And the work is growing and multiplying, even the priests are And goes again in verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And, of course, this agitated people. And he is arrested, stood before the council, and had to answer for his faith. And in so doing, Stephen gives this address, recounting the entire history of the Jewish people, all the way back from Abraham onward, and he gets down to their time in verse 51. And if you think that any of the sermons that I ever preach are sharp or to the point, look at how this man delivers his message. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, which is his theme statement. He's gone through the history of Israel to show, by the way, here's a way you failed, and here's where you failed, and here's how you rejected, and here's how you rejected. You've always done this. Speaking to the Jewish people collectively through their leaders. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And he challenged them, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, and of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Notice that this is the same message as the day of Pentecost, as every other sermon, talking to the Jewish people, you rejected your own Messiah. The difference is those were the common people, those were the lay people. Now Stephen is presenting this to the Sanhedrin, the rulers, the leaders themselves. And notice the response. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were what? Cut to the heart. Same internal response. They were convicted by the truth of his message. But how did they choose to react to that? And they gnashed at him with their teeth. They set their teeth on edge. But he, 
being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You understand the timeliness of this. Daniel chapter 9, 70 weeks, the 490 years, is this is the moment. And the leaders who killed their own Messiah are listening to a very clear, a very pointed outline of the entire history of the nation and they as leaders are now responsible for their response and Stephen says you killed your own Messiah and the Bible records they were cut to the heart there was a moment of decision and they gnashed their teeth and they're starting to harden their hearts the heavens opened and Jesus himself is standing there And Stephen, you can imagine, standing between those who killed Jesus and the Jesus arisen, the Jesus ascended, says, look, he's right there. As if to say, this is your last chance, I'm it. Verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him, with one accord they had united because of the message of the preaching against Jesus Christ instead of uniting in one accord for Jesus Christ and notice they they scream at him they yell at the top of their voices they physically plug their ears they it's although they're trying to physically push the truth out they can't do it And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, always introducing the next character who's going to come up. It's brilliantly written. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. He's developed the character of Christ, has he not? Isn't that what Jesus cried out on the cross? Forgive them, they know not what they do. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. With the stoning of Stephen, you bring to a close that 70-week prophecy of probation for the nation of Israel. And now it's time for the message to go to the Gentiles. And it takes persecution to get them out. That's the very thing. You go into chapter 8, persecution hits. And Saul is foremost in persecuting. And they go out and, they, and the believers spread the word. Of course, this is where we find uh, verse 8, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for whom? The apostles. So when you read in verse 4, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word, we know specifically it wasn't Peter and James and John, it wasn't the apostles. It was the lay members going out and preaching the word wherever they went, and through that vehicle, the message began to spread. Of course, as we go on to chapter 8, the rest of it, um, Peter, again, deals with some interesting characters. We think of Simon the sorcerer who tried to buy the Holy Spirit. He almost had his own little Ananias and Sapphira experience over that one. The the deacon Philip preaches to the Ethiopian in the rest of chapter 8. Chapter 9, 
begins with the conversion of Saul when Jesus literally knocked him off of his horse while he was trying to persecute the church even more. Jesus says, by the way, you're persecuting me. Pick on someone your own size. Knocks him off his horse and blinds him for days. And that thus begins the conversion of Saul to becoming the Apostle Paul that we'll talk about next Sabbath. But Peter goes on, continues to do works of healing in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 9. Heals Aeneas. Uh, Peter resurrects Dorcas. So now it's not just healing the lame, and it's actually raising the dead. And notice what it says here at the end of Acts chapter 9. Verse 41. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he called her, and when he called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. And it introduces Simon a tanner. It tells us where he was staying. Why? Because that's going to be important in the next chapter. It always closes with an introduction of the chapter that's to come. And what happens in the next chapter? Chapter 10. It's time now. The persecution has begun. The Jews have rejected their Messiah officially through the leadership of the church. Officially they're done. And... It's time to go to the Gentiles. But you recall, Peter is a cultural Jerusalem Hebrew Jew. He's grown up that it's not just impolite or inappropriate. It's literally illegal in Jewish law to go mingle and associate with, you know, those types. And what you see in Acts chapter 10 and 11, there's two chapters devoted to this experience of Peter and Cornelius that we're going to study in just a moment. But think of the significance of that. Two whole chapters devoted to trying to weed this cultural bias out of Peter. Now, we think of Paul was the preacher to the Gentiles. Peter started it. But the Lord had to drag him, kick him and screaming, kick him over there. In fact, watch how this happens. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Cornelius was a good guy. He just wasn't Jewish. He was a worshiper of the true God. He just wasn't a Hebrew. He was a Gentile. Jesus, by the way, had encountered someone like that in Matthew chapter 8. Not Cornelius, but it was the centurion whose servant was ill. And Jesus said, I will come. And the centurion has to stop him and say, no, 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 no. And he gives him two reasons. Number one, I'm not worthy for you to come in my house. Uh, I, 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 both of us would be, that would just, it's not right. But second of all, I'm a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. They go and I tell them to go. They come and I tell them to come. He's like, in the same way you, you don't have to come. You just, pre- you just say the word and you have people. And this was the only person during Jesus' ministry that I can find a record of that understood how Jesus worked. That he doesn't have to go personally. He has people work for him. He sends his angels. And it says that Jesus marveled. Like, ha, are you kidding me? You get it? And these people don't? (laughs) Here again, we have a centurion who wants to learn of Jesus, who's devoted to God, but there's a cultural problem. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius. When he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? 
So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel spoke to him, he and when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa, which of course is where Peter is staying at Simon's house. Now, on the flip side of this, verse 9, the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, notice they left before Peter had his vision experience. They were already en route because the timing works out. God's divine appointments are never accidents. He brings things together at the right time. Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, notice that Peter kind of falls back to the old Peter. You recall Jesus? Why did, why did Peter get called Satan? Get thee behind me. Why did he? Because Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is going to happen. And he says, far be it from us. That's not going to happen to you. I won't let it. <laughs> Rebukes Jesus, the Bible says. And here, the old Peter kind of bubbles up again. He gets a direct command from heaven. Rise, kill and eat. And Peter's response, verse 14, but Peter said, not so, Lord. You can imagine he was proud of himself. Aha, this is a trap. This is a trick. It's a test of faith, and I will be pure. I'm not going to do it. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. I'm a devout Jew. I'm a Hebrew. Come on now. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has, call, what has, God has cleansed, you must not call common. Okay. Now again, we're going to get from the context of this. He ha- this has nothing to do with food. It has everything to do with people, right? This was done three times. Peter's like, ah, I don't know. Come on, wait, wait, wait. No, nope, not going to do it. Not, not going to do it. And he keeps saying no. And the object was again taken up into heaven. Verse 17, now while Peter wondered within himself what the vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. So Peter's like, what could that have possibly meant? Who is it? Gentiles. (laughs) I don't know if they literally like the lepers. Unclean, you know, I don't know how that worked. But he opens there and notice this now. Watch Watch this nuance here. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. It's like when you open the door, you're going to see three men, and you're going to think it's a mistake. Go with them. So you notice that all along the way, the Lord has taken these Gentiles and brought them here to to Peter, and he's given them to Peter. He keeps trying to push him and push him. He says, Now, don't doubt anything. Don't say no. Open the door and do what they ask. Go with them. So the Lord is kicking Peter down the road, if you will. Then Peter went down, verse 21, to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. 
for what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged with them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. That's an interesting little thing. They, later, it identifies them as those of the circumcision. Right? These are the Hebrews believers, but those who believe you have to become a Hebrew first before you can become a believer. You have to be Jewish before you can be Christian. And so they hear this invitation, and they're like, all right, Peter, we're going to go along and see what's going on here. And if you recall, if you read the rest of Acts chapter 10, we just don't have time for it, but Peter goes and preaches that same message, but this time, you'll notice there's a couple differences. He doesn't make reference to all the Old Testament scriptures, and he doesn't say, whom you crucified and killed, because it wasn't him. He's like, uh, it was our Messiah, and we, uh, we did that. But he preaches it in a way that Cornelius would receive it and understand it, and Cornelius believes And the Lord signifies this faith by sending the Holy Spirit and giving them the gift of tongues the same way it happened in Acts chapter 2. And now look at chapter 11. Now, verse 1, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And you would think, and they praised the Lord that his plans were going forward. Verse 2, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. Now, what does contended mean? Fought. They disputed. Saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them? You better explain yourself, Mr. Peter. Peter got in trouble. Notice he didn't even get in trouble necessary for preaching the word, just for going with them at all and eating with them, fellowshipping in any way. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. He tells the whole story. Acts chapter 11 just basically repeats Acts chapter 10, but this time it's the story of what happened from Peter's own mouth. And it's almost as though Peter's incredulous, like, look, guys, I'm with you. I I believe if it wasn't for this, I, I would think it was crazy too, but it happened, and... And then this happened, and then the Holy Spirit was poured out. And verse 16, he says, oh, I'm sorry, verse 15, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the words of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And here's his punchline, verse 17. If therefore God gave them the same gift as we have, as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, Who is I that I could withstand God? He was like, I'm with you, man. I would have said no too, but the Lord was leading this thing. And notice they love Peter. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It took Peter's testimony, his explanation, to get them cool with the idea. But Peter calms them down and said, look, man, I was with you. But this happened, this happened, this happened. Now, there's only one more chapter where Peter plays a major role all on his own, and that's Acts chapter 12. And this is where I want to kind of close down with. Now, Peter will play a role in Acts 15, 
at the first Jerusalem council. There's two major councils in Jerusalem. The first one was about circumcision, whether people had to become Jewish first and then become Christian. And Peter plays a role because he has to retell that story of Cornelius. And he recounts how the Lord chose through him to preach the Gentiles. But the reason that Peter was called to say that was because they were picking on Paul for doing it. And Peter had to come and basically rescue Paul amongst the leaders, the apostles, the elders in Jerusalem. Anyway, it's setting up the conflict that we're going to see in Acts 15, which will be two sermons from now. Okay, but we're getting there. Now, chapter 12. Watch this now. Now about the time Herod, king, uh, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some of the church, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So now it's no longer just imprisonment and threats and letters or whatnot. It's starting to become real. James is executed for his faith. And notice verse 3. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews. Now, of course, these are the unbelieving Jews who don't like any Christianity being taught. He proceeded to further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had him arrested, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. What's going to happen to Peter after Passover? He's going to be brought before the people and probably done the same thing that happened to James, right? Because it's going to make the Jews happy that we're eradicating this Christian up starts you know so peter's down on death row peter was therefore and this is the key i want to leave here peter was therefore kept in prison but constant prayer was offered to god for him by whom the church they prayed for peter they prayed and they prayed constantly and the response to that immediately comes in verse 6 while he's chained up, an angel comes, strikes him, verse 7, chains fall off of him, the angel sends him on his way, and Peter escapes. And of course, Herod ends, his life is ended in that chapter as well. But this is the climax of Peter's involvement, aside from his role in the council at Jerusalem that decides about circumcision. This is basically where the book of Acts leaves Peter. He'd been in prison. The people love him. They pray for him constantly. And the Lord hears their prayers, miraculously frees Peter to go on about his way. I'll just give you a little hint as to where we're going. Paul was also in prison later on. But he didn't have the prayer support that Peter did. We'll find his story next week. But for me, one of the most powerful things about the book of Acts and the, per, the personal role that Peter played is that Peter, even after his reinstatement by Jesus Christ and his leadership in Acts chapter 1 and his preaching in Acts chapter 2 and the ministry that follows in Acts 3, 4, and onward, that even with all of that, he still had a prejudice inside of him. He had some unchrist-likeness that needed to be worked out and whittled out and weeded out of his personality. And the Lord was patient with him. And even during his ministry, even during his time, even during his time of faithfulness, there was greater faithfulness he needed from Peter. And he worked with him.
If you, tr- if you mark the trajectory of Peter, he starts as this foul-mouthed fisherman who starts following John the Baptist. Then he follows Jesus, and he's full of ups and downs and ups and downs, and he, at the very end, oh, denies his Lord horribly. Jesus reinstates him, makes him a leader. But even in the midst of that, there's still... Throughout his entire life, there are these issues of character that need to be worked out of Peter's life. And I praise the Lord that he didn't just leave him alone, but every time he reproved him, corrected him, worked with him, and molded him and fashioned him more and more like Jesus. Hopefully that is an encouragement to all of us today. There are probably things in our life, even though we have committed to Jesus Christ, even though we want to work for him and spread the message and be his missionaries in this world, there are things that still need to be weeded out of our lives. It might be some sort of bias or prejudice. It might be a short temper. It might be a foul mouth. I don't know what it is, but there's something that still triggers in there that the Lord wants to work out of our lives. But his goal is not to find things to keep you out. Aha, there's a thing, squish. I don't know. He wants to draw that out of you and get that behind and lead you on to greater and greater things that the Lord keeps leading us day by day, individually, and as we see in the book of Acts, the church collectively. The Lord is working with his people to make them what he needs them to be. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that movement. I want to be individually committed to Christ and let him lead and work those things out of the life and collectively be part of that missionary movement that will hasten the coming of Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.